Welcome back to Water Flying. This week we're in Anchorage, Alaska again with our good friend Aaron Martin from U.S. Fish and Wildlife. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, water flying is back in Anchorage, Alaska, here on the shores of Lake Hood, the world's largest seaplane base. And we are joined by my good friend, Aaron Martin, the Invasive Species Program Manager and Coordinator for the Anchorage region of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, thank you for taking time because we're both very busy and you're pin pinning the two of us down is uh, quite a challenge. No, it's, it's great to be here finally. It's been a long time and much overdue to be sitting down next to you along, yeah, Lake Hood, what a perfect spot for uh, a meeting. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're literally looking over the lake. Uh, my portable recording studio here at the uh, Lakefront Hotel, they are always really gracious to let us record here in the Flying Moose restaurant uh, when it's closed. Aaron, uh, you and I have worked together on invasive species uh, for several years now, and I consider you a great friend, and I love uh, working with you on addressing our challenges with uh, invasive species and how they relate to seaplanes, and I've learned so much over the years that uh, really is eye-opening and alarming, I would say, yeah. in many ways. Um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your background and, and how you ended up at U.S. Fish and Wildlife specializing in invasive species and here in Alaska? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, I grew up in southern Idaho on the banks of the Boise River. My life's always been around water and planes, literally using planes to get into backcountry airships to go rafting with my family, um, using airplanes to, and float planes to go into remote field locations into Alaska for a lot of our salmon research projects. And um, it's just, yeah, it's been a long journey to be here. Like you said, I'm the Regional Invasive Species Program Coordinator. And um, I went to the University of Montana for my undergraduate degree, got a wildlife degree in with an aquatic emphasis and um, fell in love with Alaska during field work. And Easy I, to do. I could never <laughs> leave. So I ended up coming back and doing my uh, graduate research up here in fisheries ecology and restoration and part of that was dealing with invasive species at the time with U.S. Forest Service and um, I ended up getting a permanent job with the Fish and Wildlife Service in Fairbanks, Alaska working around subsistence resources and working to help conserve and restore those salmon populations and at the time Elodia was um, starting to emerge as an issue in Alaska and Elodia was our first invasive aquatic plant and so my career has taken a couple different turns since that, the early 2000s, and uh, I've been in Anchorage at the Alaska Regional Office since 2010, dealing with aquatic invasive species and fisheries restoration work and a and little bit of everything invasive, everything from um, rats and fox to, to invasive mussels and aquatic plants. Well, I tell you what, the you know, here in Alaska, that's such an amazing natural resource, but it is threatened. And uh, I don't think that the general population understands how much threat that this resource is under from invasive species. And 
through working with everyone in the invasive world, which I've really enjoyed. Again, it's been an incredible education, but it's also just, uh, it can be very troubling at times because there is so many things threatening. And then Elodia uh, for the salmon fisheries here, it just scares the living bejesus out of me because uh, yeah. it can destroy the habitat for uh, the egg laying. Yeah, uh, Dr. Shore at University of Alaska Anchorage did some amazingly helpful work to help us get a better understanding on the potential impacts of Elodia on salmon resources. And just within the Bristol Bay watershed alone, his research showed through um, interviews with seaplane pilots and that were charter pilots, private pilots, and federal and state pilots that it could have up to $150 million annual impact on the sake salmon fishery in Bristol Bay alone. Um, and that just amplifies out everywhere in Alaska as Elodia spreads. And huge kudos go out to the Alaska Invasive Species Partnership and all the state and federal agencies, Alaska Department of Natural Resources, Division of Agriculture is the statewide lead on Elodia issues. And they've done a tremendous amount to help get us organized and help jump on Elodia infestations as soon as they're showing up. And we've learned how important it is to address those when they're very small. And so really help emphasize the need to get more eyes and ears on the ground and in the air looking for Elodia in a lot of different ways. Um, you, you and I have known each other for five or six years now, Steve, yeah. and I think we, we actually met on the shore of Lake Powell talking about um, ways to prevent the spread of all things AIS, but um, invasive mussels at the time. Yeah. Just, yeah. We're really trying hard to build up our prevention program here. A lot of other states and regions throughout the United States and across the world really are kind of on the post-invasion side of dealing with the invasive species. And we have a tremendous opportunity in Alaska to be on the pre-invasion and be the on the front side of yeah. it. So which very, very much proactive side is where I'm coming at it. And I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you and the pilots about it. Yeah, well, it's, you know, my stance from the Seaplane Pilots Association is that our community really needs to put huge emphasis on being the good guys and being the good stewards of the natural resources. Um, we love these natural wild spaces that we get to enjoy. And we get to see things and enjoy things that most people probably can't even physically imagine because they don't know these places exist. And so it's our duty as seaplane pilots to be the best stewards we can of the resource. And that's my job to encourage our members and our pilots and to educate them and give them the tools so that when we are going out to these beautiful areas that we preserve them as best we can. Yeah, yeah. the, the scale of Alaska is intimidating, but it's also what, what brings us here and why we live here because of the resources we live with and we live from. Um, but from a, from a management side of things, just trying to get more people out on the ground trying to help us better understand where Elodia and other invasive plants and animals are is the best way to help us. And, um, so there's all sorts of tools online at the alaskainvasivespecies.org that can help teach you what Elodia and other invasive species look like that we're concerned about and help you understand how to report those as well. Yeah. So you and I were going through WIT2 training, which is a government level inspection and decontamination course when we met. And I was so committed to the importance of that. And it was such an eye-opening experience that we committed that 100% of our board members yeah. would also go through the system, which I think almost all of them have. We've had a couple of changes in the board. And with COVID, we had to stop the training. Uh, Quagga D was only doing online training. And I feel adamant, though, that the training needs to be done in person to be really effective. Because I think the best way to understand the issue is to 
get that real world experience. So I'm actually waiting for Quagga to start doing the courses in person again. Um, but uh, that commitment to take the board members, they've all paid their way uh, to attend the training. And we're additionally trying to get uh, our field directors, which are, is our a network of volunteers. We have uh, approximately five volunteers in every state across the country um, that I wanna get all of them through as well so that we can help train and bring the awareness up. So the Seaplane Pilots Association is seriously committed to invasive species and, and preventing the spread of them yep. as much as possible. And, and it's nice to be in that position. Um, and I can't wait. We were having a discussion earlier, which you and I hadn't even talked about yet, but there was uh, some interest in bringing Quagga D up here. And I said that uh, Seaplane Pilots Association will help fund that. Awesome. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's great. Everybody heard him say that. So that's, that's perfect because we, yeah, we, the Fish and Wildlife Service, with a bunch of our other state and federal par partners are wanting to bring that up here as well. And we, we were hoping to do that this year. And just with COVID kind of on the back side of things, we're able to start to think about doing that again. And so if, if there are listeners that are interested in taking an inspection and decontamination course, please reach out to Steve or myself and we can get you on a list. Hook you up and get you on a list yep. to get some training because it's uh, an eye-opening experience and it's the best way to really see the magnitude of the issue and the best way to combat it as yep. well. So, you know, as we're bragging about or, or I guess relishing the fact that we're here on the shore of Lake Hood, uh, unfortunately, this was the epicenter uh, for the spread of Elodia in the state of Alaska, and, and the incipient cause probably wasn't seaplane pilots from a standpoint that there was an introduction here to the lake that was probably cons uh, considered fairly innocent at the time. But I think it's important to talk about how an innocent transfer of, of invasive species can have such a huge impact. So having Lake Hood, the largest seaplane base in the world, uh, infected with Elodia by an outside source literally has caused multiple lakes and water bodies here in Alaska to be infected. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that history uh, and what happened here? Yeah, so Alaska has two different kinds of Elodia and Elodia is native to the Pacific Northwest and the East Coast, the two kinds that we have. And there's a Brazilian Elodia that we don't want here and is not here yet. Um, and there's state prohibitions about importing it and selling um, Elodia was, is, it's an aquarium plant. Um, it's commonly used in aquariums for providing habitat, but also it creates a lot of oxygen for, for your pets. So unfortunately, what happens is people at the end of the school year or when they move or they are tired of taking care of their, their pets, unfortunately they'll walk down and dump, they'll, they'll dump their aquarium into the nearby water, water body, be it a lake or a stream. And that's, that's presumed to be the, the how- Incipient the, yeah, uh, event. Yeah, and Elodia has been, there's documented um, records from the early 80s of Elodia being in the Cordova area. Um, but it, it stayed there and was isolated there. And then in about 2010, it started getting found more commonly. It was found in Lake Hood. And then it, the more we learned about it and more we started looking, it was popping up in more water bodies. So I don't have the total count in front of me as far as how many water bodies we, we have either eradicated it from or are working on, but there's probably five in the state that are float plane accessible right now. One on Kenai National Wildlife Refuge and then one here in Anchorage and three out in the Matanuska Sisseton River Valley. And the great thing about Elodia is that you can, while it spreads incredibly easy because it just a, a fragment of a plant can start a whole nother population, a root can start another plant or it seeds also. And 
Um, the nice thing is there's very effective management techniques, tools, herbicides that we can use and have had great success eradicating these populations. And the key is to find these populations or infestations when they're small to say it's much more cost effective and um, doesn't take as many years to eradicate, to eradicate. In, in, gen in general. So, yeah, uh, I think it's we, we are learning. I, th I like to say, and I, I think our partners throughout the Alaska Invasive Species with partnership would agree that Elodia, we are learning how to control Elodia more so than it is spreading now. For a while, it was spreading faster than we were learning about it. Had a, yeah, you were kind of behind the curve on it a yeah, little bit. And yeah. I feel like we're on the uphill side of it. Good. We're on the downhill That's amazing. side of that now. So we're yeah. getting momentum, and the, certainly the resources from the state and federal and private industries are aligning on getting more people looking for it, educated about why it should be a concern. I mean, the, the big piece is Elodia creates these really dense mats of, of vegetation and what it causes hazards for boaters and float plane pilots. Um, I'll let you kind of describe yeah. the potential hazards on that. But from an ecological perspective, I, it takes over the entire water body and makes it a monoculture. So it pushes out all the other native plants because it just, it survives under five feet of ice all winter long. It kind of goes dormant, but it doesn't die off like our native vegetation. Well, that's what's uh, alarming about Elodia is it, yeah. it does not have a temperature sensitivity. It, it's yeah. very robust and can survive a harsh Alaska yeah. freeze. Yeah, it uh, just slows down a little bit, but when the, when the ice comes off, so anybody that's out flying, if this, if this goes out live, this radio goes live now, if anybody's out flying, and they say dense green mats, it's let us know because native vegetation shouldn't be quite out yet. Yeah. And uh, no, I don't know what our release date will be on this, but I think our goal is to try to identify Elodia anywhere that it's seen in Alaska and photograph it and document where it was so we yes. can alert you guys to, uh, to uh, you know, be aware of it. So I think one of the things, you know, one of the biggest things we need to do today is tell people if they do go into an infected body of water or if they do see invasive species on their float plane or on their floats or on the attachment gear or anything else, um, if you're operating in a body of water where you do have Elodia, um, as you taxi out, you know, what I'd like to do is encourage you to shut down and clear water and exercise your water rudders and do a quick inspection. Uh, go around with the scrub brush or, or just try to identify any fragments that may have been caught. Most common area is the water rudders and the water rudder attachment area. If you're flying amphibs, uh, you'll catch it on the nose gear. Uh, it would be a real common place to get it. But also on the spreader bars and in any of the attachment gear, it tends to hang up on the, the leading edge of anything that's into the wind or into the water as you're landing or taking off at speed. So uh, those are the areas you want to be really careful of. So if you can get into clear water and just shut down and just do a quick inspection, uh, that's incredibly helpful and help. Uh, again, this only takes a, a fragment to spread. You can start an entire new population with a very small piece of Elodia. Uh, the other thing you can do is if you're ta taking off from an infected lake, uh, circle around the lake and um, uh, exercise your water rudders, and if you're on an amphib, exercise the gear and just shake the airplane around a little bit, try to dislodge anything before you leave and go somewhere else. And if you have the opportunity, especially in an amphib, uh, go back to a, a land runway and do an inspection before you go to a clean lake or an, a lake where there's no identified elodio. Yep, no, that's perfect. And I guess the one piece to add into that, uh, we, we are, are, as individuals, can be a, a vector for elodia too. Yes. Uh, if you're a lot of my time on seaplanes has been wearing hip boots and getting it out of the water 
um, or your real easy to catch uh, fragments yeah. or yeah. even uh, terrestrial as we were talking about it's not just aquatic invasive species when we're talking about seaplane pilots and you know guides taking people back into the bush and, and things like that campers hunters whatever uh, there's all kinds of potential vectors uh, on the gear uh, that went ashore yeah so let's talk about that a little bit of the maybe uh, inspection that you can do on that yeah, so as you're getting onto your plane um, from your home location, like if you were getting loading a plane here at Lake Hood, I mean, just with Lake Hood surrounded by domestic vegetation and invasive terrestrial plants. White, we've got this plant called white sweet clover. Mm -hmm. We've got bird vetch, um, really common in Fairbanks, and they're extremely invasive plants. And just a, a, a fragment of our seeds on your boots or in your backpack um, can start a new infestation in a place that should never have had an infestation. So just getting in and making sure you, before you load the plane that you use a boot brush or dunk your dunk your boots in the water real quick, try and rinse it off the best you can. Do the same thing with your backpacks as you're loading your gear, trying to make sure there aren't any seeds in your backpacks from your previous excursion. And we have people, Alaska is a global destination, right? We have people coming here from all over the world and they're, they're in Argentina one day and then Alaska the next day. And so the potential to move these exotic plants and animals is pretty high for us and um, there's some really simple steps just like checking your boot laces and your don't transport firewood yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's plenty of firewood in alaska yeah right you don't need to do that right now yeah. so uh i know in you know in the lower 48 one of the big things is you don't want to move your firewood more than 50 miles on you yeah. know is kind of the the rule of thumb yep but uh, yeah, you don't uh, here. It doesn't seem to be a problem, <laughs> but yeah. but it, it, it's little things like that. Um, your boots picking up gravel, um, seeds, weeds. I mean, there's so many different vectors that you yeah. can uh, when we're out in the bush. So uh, clean that gear really good. Try to inspect yeah. it and leave whatever whatever's on it where where it came from. Yep, you got it. So uh, you know, I think the future is bright because if I look at three years ago. Uh, if I just go back to even 2019, 2018, it seemed like, you know, everyone was scared and running for solutions here uh, for the Elodia. It didn't, it, I think at that time they were still, I mean, we were talking about draining ponds and, and other stuff at, at that point and searching for solutions. And it sounds like from everything I'm hearing that uh, the eradication and the treatment uh, through chemical processes is working right now and there's a little bit more confidence that we can be successful yeah I, I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet but i think we're there's a lot of cautious optimism if you will um that the the awareness is there of how to deal with it when we get into an infestation i think the the key now is to increase the general the the awareness of the issue and so there's more people knowing about it and the, trying to practice those best management practices to make sure it doesn't continue to spread. And, um, there's, a, there's some really incredible, incredibly fascinating scientific research questions about it. Like what is the desiccation rate of Elodia fragment entrained in a float plane rudder? Mm -hmm. um, and we've poked at some of that. Um, Dr. Shura at University of Alaska Anchorage has done some work to understand the frequency of entrainment of native and invasive plants in rudders and stuff, putting GoPros on the back ends of float planes. And um, I think just continuing to better understand what that is and how we continue to, to address it proactively. And, and then better understand what are these other species that we should be concerned about. Um, invasive, we're fortunate to knock on wood, not have <laughs> hydrilla or milfoil here, but those are really common invasive aquatic plants in the lower 48. And 
they're on a state prohibited species list here and Alaska Department of Natural Resources and Fish and Game are working really hard to keep those and others from being brought here and sold here. But last year, um, two years ago, we had invasive zebra mussels showing up at our pet stores in Alaska in, um, in, the, the, in moss the moss balls. Yeah. yeah. So it, it just continually reminds me and kind of keeps me up at night sometimes. I just like there's so many different pathways that invas aquatic invasive species can get here. So just having our eyes wide open and never never feeling too overly confident that we're beyond it. Well, I was really impressed. I mean, so when the Elodia, uh, you know, was kind of identified that we thought it was an, a, a, a fish tank release uh, here in the lake. I mean, the reaction was pretty swift going out to all the pet stores and uh, banning the sale of, of live Elodia for the pet industry, which was the, you know, probably one of the number one places you'd find Elodia, especially here in Alaska, would be in a pet store. And there was an immediate ban on it. And literally there were pop-up inspections of the pet stores and everything else. It was treated, I mean, it was a very quick, and when it was, it was addressed, it was done very swiftly and, and very proactively. And, uh, you know, I really commend that kind of response. Well, and a lot of credit goes to the pet the pet trade industry too, on a national level, they've been incredibly um, helpful and supportive of trying to minimize these risks um, from the zebra mussel piece with the moss balls and the, like you said, the Elodia piece. And each state has its different requirements on what species can and cannot be sold. So it's been, it's been great to have that support. Yeah, and I think, you know, people don't realize even going down to Home Depot or Lowe's or not to point anyone out, but your, your, whoever your garden supplier is, uh, for terrestrial stuff, I mean, there's a, a big threat. People don't realize an innocent, an innocent purchase at a garden store or something can can really spread a, a you know, establish a whole new population. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you and I before the radio show were we were talking about about Cuban tree frogs, and those are hitchhiking their way across the southeastern United States, and they're they're moving around in that exact vec the pathway that you were just describing with the the uh, houseplant. Yeah. purchases at Lowe's and Home Depot and other garden vendor stores, they they hide out and then they show up in state 14 states away and um, they should have never been there in the first place. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I love what I do. It's incredibly exciting and diverse as far as the taxonomic pieces and the, the just the questions that we get to ask each other on how, how to prevent things and how to change human behavior. and. Um, never a dull moment. It's a, there's a lot of different pieces that are risking the resources that Alaska has to offer for so many. And the, uh, the commercial salmon fishery is one of the biggest driving economic forces in Alaska. And um, so we have a lot at stake from just a subsistence and a recreational, let alone a, a commercial side. And again, I, I'll just stress that that's where we as seaplane pilots have the ultimate responsibility and stewardship from a standpoint that we get to enjoy these amazingly remote and beautiful locations that we have unique access to uh, due to the mode of transportation. But I feel that that also comes with the responsibility to make sure that we're on the forefront of protecting the resource as well and taking responsibility for the stewardship of it. And again, that's always been the approach I've taken and that's the guidance I'm giving our members and, and listeners. I think if someone is already familiar with invasive species. And since 80% of our seaplane pilot members for the association also own boats, they probably have been exposed to this at, at some level. And they may be asking themselves, why aren't we talking about quagga mussels and, and zebra mussels and things like that? Um, do you want to take a moment to kind of address why we haven't talked about that yeah. to this point? 
Yeah, you bet. Um, before I do that, though, I want to just give you and the SPA a, a huge thank you for the proactive side of things on partnering on invasive species and in implementing the invasive species layer into your mobile app for what lakes yep. are appropriate to land in and out. And that's just a, a really great tool to be able to amplify people's awareness on um, where invasive species are in Alaska, aquatic invasive species, and the potential risks of those. So thank you for doing that. Oh, no. And I think you know, uh, and the listeners probably don't know, and I don't think many of our members know that for several years, for I think about two years, we worked on developing uh, a new study to uh, study the, the potential vectors and pathways from seaplanes and that the Seaplane Pilots Association partnered with U.S. Fish and Wildlife on that project in particular, which is now going on. We've yeah. selected the research, uh, researchers for the yeah. project, and SPA and, and a couple of the manufacturers uh, of floats, uh, both Whip Air and uh, Aeroset, uh, are helping fund that as well. And uh, so not only is the Seaplane Pilots Association proactively also trying to provide research and, and more data on this because the data did honestly did not exist, yeah. uh, but so are the float manufacturers getting on board with this. And again, I really enjoy the partnership and, and the opportunity to work with Fish and Wildlife because uh, working with yourself and, and everyone with in the community has been uh, very rewarding. So let's talk about uh, quagga and uh, zebra mussels, just why we haven't been talking about them a lot. Yeah, you bet. Well, a huge shout out goes to my Alaska Department of Fishing Game partner, Tammy Davis, who's yeah. been kind of <laughs> the lead on quagga and zebra mussels for a long time here and just really tuned in on a Western national level on the topic way before I showed up in my position. And um, they're, they're certainly a threat, zebra and quagga mussels. They're one of the, they're considered one of the top aquatic invasive species in the world and they're native to Eastern, Eastern Europe and they, they've brought, been brought here by ballast water into the Great Lakes in the in the early 19 in the mid 1900s and have just unfortunately spread throughout the Midwest and then have showed up in some of the western states and there's not too many western states now including Alaska that that doesn't that don't have quagga or zebra mussels and we're trying to keep it that way and um, what they they clog infrastructure they can foul boat motors they can foul, foul float plane rudders I, I'm sure and um, from a hydropower facility perspective they they clog populate. They clog the pipes, and um, Alaska's got about 21% of our electricity is from hydropower. I don't think people appreciate how much of our energy across the state, especially for our rural communities, um, is hydropower. And so, an infestation of quagga's zebra mussels could really set us back again from just an infrastructure perspective. But ecologically, they they filter out all the the small phytoplankton, the, mm -hmm. the the plant matter that the zooplankton and the salmon are dependent on. So they completely shift the, the basically ecosystem. sterilize the the water column yeah. and so there's no nutrients water. in the yeah yeah so um and it, it would have a really catastrophic piece and that was one of the things we we're talking about doing to better understand what that risk or impact would be if they got established but um from a float plane side of things i think it, it, the likelihood of them moving around and from the lower 48 and making it to alaska is is pretty low i think there's more direct means that they would get here through fishermen or watercraft um, I'm not going to say that it's not not a, a, a real reality, but it's probably a lower risk than other vectors. And um, but it's it's certainly a, one of our species, and we're getting more organized around it to help try and continue to minimize the likelihood that it'd be introduced here. Yeah, and there's been some great studies of the, the boat traffic, uh, recreational boat traffic, just being trailered uh, into Alaska. And I what one of the things that I was really 
uh, keen to see is that there were literally several boats that had come all the way from Florida in a given year, um, made the trek from Florida to Alaska, which is an unbelievably long drive to be towing a boat. But I mean, the vector is there. I mean, uh, uh, there was a nationwide map and you guys tracked all the boat traffic coming in, where it was coming from. And it was amazing how far people were traveling with their boats to, to get to Alaska. Yeah, we're trying to better understand the limitations of where invasive quagga zebra mussels could take hold. They're really dependent on high calcium levels and, and low pH. And so we're going to be branching out across our partnership to get more water quality data. Alaska is such a vast state that we don't have very much consolidated data like some of our other state partners do. So from a habitat suitability, trying to understand where risk should be mitigated, mitigated um, we're going to we're going to be ramping up our efforts there and talking with john trying to get um, spa involved in putting settling plates in float plane bases um, to understand the the villagers the juvenile mussels when they reproduce they settle out of the water column and attach to metal um, and it's one of the kind of the simple ways to better understand if if your lake is infested because mm-hmm. it's just this microscopic zooplankton freeform when they're when they're juveniles and then they settle out and harden and become a more visible muscle. So yeah, I'm hoping we can continue to build our relationship around that. That's something that we, you know, you and I should work on just, that should be a nationwide program. Uh, We've got the resource, we've got the members that have waterfront property. Um, That's very easy for us to do and we just need to be doing it. Yeah, let's make it happen. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, really fascinating. I always like, you know, just love coming here. I'm coming here more often. And I was tallying, you know, how much of my life I've literally spent here, (laughs) quite a bit of it at this very location Um, and traveling around Alaska, getting the chance to work with you and the relationship that we've developed. And again, understanding what a crucial role that we as seaplane pilots can have in protecting the environment as we enjoy it. Uh, it's just a, uh, an issue that is unavoidable for us. And uh, it's nice to be able to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah. So uh, if our uh, listeners would like to reach out, if they're, you know, especially if you're a pilot here in Alaska Seaplane Pilot listening to this broadcast and you would uh, have concerns about operating and not spreading invasive species or you have questions, uh, how can they reach out to you directly? Because you're a great resource that's literally right here. How can they reach out uh, to you to get uh, in contact and, and get uh, information they need? Yeah, you can email me at Aaron underscore E underscore Martin at FWS.gov. So A-A-R-O-N underscore E underscore Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N at FWS.gov. Um, the, we worked with our seaplane pilots so we have the Fish and Wildlife Service has a dozen or more seaplane pilots in the region that help move people around for our field work, but also do research for us. And they're pilot biologists or they're law enforcement pilots. And um, we worked with them about four years ago to, to develop some simple fact sheets, like one pager front and back about best management practices. If folks are interested in getting that to put on your put in the back seat um, behind you so you can have those practices that you mentioned earlier, Steve, about flexing your flexing the rudders or um, stopping and cleaning off your equipment, let me know. Um, the alaskainvasivespecies.org website has all sorts of uh, information on uh, plant identification and events that we're hosting. So the, the third week of June is the Alaska Invasive Species Awareness Week. So if there's anybody listening um, that wants to get involved with that, um, we're going to have 
events statewide. We're going to be doing podcasts and social media platforms all over the state. So we'd love to have some participation from some of our pilot, yeah. pilot partners. Very good. And, you know, so everyone understands also flow planes are being used for the very work that you're doing. I mean, seaplanes are a crucial part of wildlife management and habitat management here in Alaska. So, you know, you guys are the good guys. It's not something where it's us against them or anything else because you guys are using seaplanes to, to achieve your mission as well. So this is something that, again, we're all in this together and it's all something we want to do. Uh, the Seaplane Pilots Association is committed. Uh, you can also get more invasive species information on seaplanes.org as well. We'll continue to provide more information. Aaron's website uh, also for the Fish and Wildlife Service has some printouts that, as you were mentioning, some downloadable resources. I'd encourage you to laminate them and, again, put them in your back seat and you yeah. can get more education. Uh, you can go to the seaplanes.org website for the invasive species decontamination video that we've done and watch that. And again, just keep looking for regular coverage between Waterflying Magazine, the podcast, and uh, live events that we're going to host all around the country, but again, especially here in Alaska. Yeah, and I'd, I'd also encourage people to reach out to the Department of Natural Resources and Fish and Game here for additional resources. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has an outreach and education coordinator, Deb Kornblatt. She's been developing these educational toolkits um, that have real three-dimensional mimics of invasive plants and animals that we're concerned about here. And we're, we're passing them out to museums and visitor service centers and things like that. So if there are listeners that are interested in getting one of these toolkits, um, it's a small tote with a different variety of games and things. Um, please reach out to me and I can get you in touch with Deb. That's awesome. Well, Aaron, again, I know you're super busy when we struggle to get together at times, uh, but it's so wonderful to be sitting here. Literally, it looks like there's a rain shower coming across the lake at the moment. Uh, but to be able to be here in Anchorage and to talk about the topic at the epicenter here at Lake Hood is just incredibly important. And again, I'd like to thank you for your partnership and your friendship that's developed and, and all the work that we've had a chance to do and will continue to do together. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. hopefully an educational episode of Waterfly. I, like I said, on location here in Anchorage, Alaska. Until then, uh, until next time, my friends, please fly safe, fly often, and be aware and be courteous and uh, good stewards when it comes to invasive species out there while you're flying. Take care. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show... I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.